All right, before we get started this evening, we'll have um, a couple of announcements. First of all, the next men's prayer breakfast, we'll we'll continue our study on uh, the videos of the book of How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, That's on May the 14th, 7.30 uh, in the morning. That's going to be followed by our deacons meeting. And then a significant announcement is that early voting for the May 7th special uh, constitutional amendments election and for Spring Branch Independent School District uh, Trustee Board comes up that that week. And t- yesterday, early voting began. And I know that uh, not all of you live in Spring Branch, but I need to say a few things about that, and I'll wait till we get in fellowship, and then we'll probably need to get in... F- then we'll probably need to get in fellowship again after after I go over the shenanigans that are happening down at the uh, school board. So we, but we need to be aware of this. And uh, so, first of all, we'll just uh, make sure we are uh, spiritually prepared to study the Word and to focus on the Lord tonight, and to recognize that whatever crazy things we see around us that are going on, that this is all part of God's permissive will, and he is allowing things to go in the direction that they're going. And um, and we know that all things work together for good because he is in providential control. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's just such a great privilege we have to live in a nation where we have the freedom to proclaim your word, to teach your word, to explain eternal truth, and to give people hope and a realization that their sins are forgiven and that they can have eternal life through simply trusting in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Father, we pray that each of us would have a great desire and passion to share the gospel with those around us that we may shine forth as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might uh, come to understand some more about your, your plan, your purpose, your revelation, especially how the Lord Jesus Christ was involved in the Old Testament period. And Father, we do pray for our nation for this election. We pray that... Um, even though there's a lot of talk about a shift, we pray that that would be possible. And we pray that there is an awakening taking place, as, as some people suggest. But, Father, above all, we just trust in you, and we need to focus on our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, not be distracted by all the speculation and other things that are going on around us. And that um, we know that your word is that which provides stability for us and is the basis for our sanctification and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have this election coming up. And today, Jim uh, was with me. We went to a meeting for pastors. And the focus of this meeting was really to have a prayer meeting for Ukraine, which was a part of it. But the key speaker was State Senator Paul Betancourt. And if you've been around Houston for a while, that name is familiar to you. He is a, he's a believer. He, I believe he goes to Second Baptist. 
and he is uh, very, very conservative and outspoken, and I think a man uh, of great integrity. And he said some things in part of his talk today that directly related to this, what is going on in uh, this, this Spring Branch ISD election uh, for trustees. And it's important for people to realize this. And, and this has application to you if you are anywhere in the United States and you live in a school district, then you need to wake up and pay attention. So there's application even if you're not in Spring Branch and don't have this, this election uh, going on uh, right away because there, there's a lot of movements that have taken place over the last 30 or 40 years to control school districts. We've seen some of this with Loudoun uh, uh, School Board up in Virginia and how the, there's a level of arrogance among these uh, school board trustees that they know more about education and about what should be taught the children than the parents do. And this is a violation of the third divine institution. A uh, government does not have the right to usurp authority over the uh, rearing and training uh, of children. And so this this is, is a real problem. Now what happened in uh, HI, I mean, in Spring Branch ISD over the last couple of years is there was, I think, believe it was a special election for one position, and uh, I do not remember the young man. He's young. He's in his 30s. Young man uh, who won the election, but his opponent was a former Spring Branch school district teacher and former, and, uh, and she also was the, the candidate for the board at that time, and her name's Virginia Elizondo. And uh, typical of people from that side of the aisle, she was a sore loser and filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against uh, the school district and arguing that it was basically structured according to a very racist formula in that uh, all of the uh, SBISD trustee positions are elected at large which is the normal way in which uh, school boards are elected in the state of Texas. This is not something unusual, as opposed to HISD, where you have, um, they're elected by, by district. Now, the bottom line on this is if you want progressives to win, the way that they, sh- they will win is by shifting from an at-large uh, election and po- uh, all positions at large to, to individual uh, Districts, and so she's been pushing this this lawsuit, and that created some problems. And I totally miss this, and it's probably because the date on the report from uh, <clears throat> from on the uh, ch- uh, Channel 13 website was a day that will live in infamy, February 24th. <laughs> So distracted by other things that were going on in my life, I did not see this. But uh, what happened is that there's as part of this this lawsuit, the um, uh, there's a lot of push uh, and pressure on the on the um, Spring Branch School Board to not hold the regular May election for school board trustees, which has been normative. What that means is that the school, the trustees that now exist folded under the pressure for the most part to go with this plan to, um, to not have, to not hold elections 
this month. And the purpose for that was that they were just going to fold and not fight this lawsuit eventually and let, let the uh, progressives win. And that was a, um, that was, that was challenged and it went to court and it was thrown out of court. So the takeaway from that is when you look at most of the serving trustees, they were willing to throw the, uh, voting rights of the citizens of the Spring Branch Independent School District under the bus. And they they just fold. It's not that they were in favor of bad things. They were just not willing to fight for the right things. They were willing to fold. And so uh, this was part of what I went up afterwards to get details from uh, Senator Betancourt and then I did some research on the Internet as well to come up with what was going on. So this is what's going on. This is an extremely important position. What people should be discovering in the last year or two is that school board members are extremely powerful, and they shape the education and the future for the next generation. And so this is a critical election. The trouble is that even in HISD, now, I think the city of Houston, or HISD, is larger than 20 states. Just let that sink in. Larger than 20 states in the union, and the election for school board uh, members in HISD is usually, uh, these races are won by less than 1,000 or 1,500 votes, and out of a out of the uh, school district that's part of the third largest city in this country, uh, fewer than 10,000 votes are cast for a school board trustee. Think about that. So if Christians just woke up, not woke in the socialist sense, but awakened, then and and we just doubled our presence at the polls voting in uh, a way that is consistent with the divine institutions, then it could transform any school district. Actually, that happened. Uh, one of the speakers uh, today who organized this meeting and has an organization called Recover America is uh, Pastor Rick Scarborough, who back in the early 90s was pastor of First Baptist Church in Pearland, and due to a number of things that that happened, I'm not going to go into his whole story, but what what he they recognized was that the school board and the city council were both just way out of bounds, and so they he started challenging people in his congregation that if you have the ability and the inclination, you need to run for office. And within two or three years, they control both the school board and the city council. And for about 10 years, they had a significant impact on things. That is how believers impact the culture, is they get involved. They don't hide in a corner or sit in a closet, but they get involved. And so that was, that was part of it. And so he, that, that's part of the challenge. We have uh, three people running in this election, Lisa Alpe. John Perez and Carolyn Bennett, and those three signs are often together. The way you know that those are the good guys is that the Democrat Party of of, uh, Harris County sent out a letter with their endorsements. They weren't for the other ones that are running for that position. Now, that is interesting because in Harris County, these elections for school boards are nonpartisan. 
And so we see how the progressives are pushing this to change the whole nature of the election processes in our county in order to shift things away from their historic foundation, uh, constitutional and Judeo-Christian values, to the progressive ideals. So we need to definitely be involved in and be involved in this election and be voting for the people that stand for um, stand for the Constitution, stand for truth, and are not out there promoting a variety of different um, uh, different programs. In fact, there's a program that's called No Place for Hate, and there signs and placards and posters are all over schools and SBISD and also in HISD and a lot of other places. Last year. Uh, due to election shift that took place in the Cypher School Board, uh, they canceled the uh, No Place for Hate program, which is a brainchild of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, which is extremely leftist progressive and extremely distorted, and it was nothing more than a a Trojan horse for critical race theory, transgender ideology, and gender-neutral language, and uh, progressive, uh, all kinds of other parts of the progressive ideology. So this is the kind of thing that parents have been unaware of and are now awakening to and need to be involved. Okay, so we are back to Judges because the book of Judges is a window into where we're headed as a country. And that is based on the fact that they rejected God's authority. They sold themselves basically into the slavery of paganism and rejected God. And the result of it was that it led to the fragmentation of, of Israel and their, their failure. So we're studying through now into the uh, third major judgeship, which is that of Gideon. And we're in Genesis, uh, Judges 6, 11 to 24, and we got to verse 11 last week where the angel of the Lord is introduced, and I began to go through what the Bible teaches about the angel of the Lord, and I looked back through my notes, and although I had covered it in an abbreviated fashion, I had never done a thorough study on the angel of the Lord for the congregation. So that is what we are doing. The outline of Judges, as we've seen, is in the first uh, two chapters plus six verses, the, we have an introduction which introduces the cycle of, of uh, disobedience and dis, uh, discipline and then deliverance, and we see the nation go from a spiritually victorious nation to a nation that is worse than the pagan Canaanites uh, surrounding them, and there's a decline in the spirituality or the of the leadership, starting with Othniel, about whom nothing negative is said, going all the way to Samson, about whom nothing positive is said. We see that the priesthood is paganized in chapters 17 and 18, and the people as well in 19 to 21. So this is the cycle. We have half of a verse describing the disobedience of Israel, Judges 6, 1a, and then in 2 down to 9, we see their uh, the discipline of the Lord, and then the beginning of deliverance starting in verse 11. So this is the Gideon cycle, the deliverance from the Midianite oppression, and you can see that the important focus is on what we see in verses 7 of chapter 6 to 835 because 
Uh, the focus is on God's grace, not on his discipline. He's not, as the liberals try to present the Old Testament, God is a God of hate and a God of anger. Uh, this is not true. You see this again and again in each of these cycles that the emphasis is on God's deliverance and God's grace. Uh, the deliverance, as I said, is in 1B through 6. And then when we get down into um, verse 11, it's when we start getting into the deliverance. So let's just review quickly what I covered last time on the angel of the Lord. The title is Malach Yahweh, or if you prefer Malach Adonai, the messenger of Yahweh. And we went through some of the examples, just starting with the Old Testament, taking each time the angel of the Lord appears and examining the context and the verses to see what we learn about this personage of the angel of the Lord. So the first time the angel of the Lord shows up is in Genesis 16, uh, verses 10 and following. And this is when the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, who is the concubine of Abraham. And uh, she is um, has become impregnated by Abraham because Sarah didn't trust God to bring about his promise of the seed through her. And so the uh, she is now in a position where Sarah is venting her anger toward uh, Hagar, and she is um, in the process of running away, and the angel of the Lord confronts her. In verse 10 we read, The angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. In other words, you can't count them. It's innumerable. Now, that's interesting because Hagar is often pictured in a negative way, but God is going to richly bless her. And as a result of that, this appearance of the angel of the Lord, this theophany, she then calls the person who appeared to her, she calls the name of the Lord who spoke spoke to her, you are the God who sees. So she gives the, the angel of the Lord a title, and that title, you are the God who sees. So she recognizes the angel of the Lord is uh, is God. And that's the first part of these um, examples is that there's evidence time and again that the angel of the Lord is fully God. So we see her referring to uh, the Lord as the God who sees. Second example, we saw last time the angel of the Lord appearing to Abraham. And at the end of Genesis 22, or in the midpoint of Genesis 22, when God has stayed the hand of Abraham, or in fact, it's the angel of the Lord who stays the hand of Abraham from uh, taking the life of, of Isaac. And so we're introduced again to the angel of the Lord. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here am I. And then the angel of the Lord tells him to stop and lay down the knife and, and then provides a substitute sacrifice. In verse, 20, in verse 15 of chapter 22, we're told that it is the angel of the Lord that called to Abraham a second time and then uses the phrase in verse 16, by myself I have sworn. 
This is typical. God swears by himself because there's nothing higher than God by which to swear. So the fact that the angel of the Lord is swearing by him, on himself means that this is, this is God. And he says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, not says the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is identified by Moses who's writing this as, uh, as the Lord. And then uh, the, it is the angel of the Lord as Yahweh who reiterates the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham in verses uh, 17 and 18. And this goes back to Genesis 22, 1, when we're introduced to this episode, and it is God who tests Abraham. So we see again this angel who... Uh, angel of the Lord who is involved in the testing of Abraham is identified as God uh, from the very beginning. And then we looked at uh, the angel of the Lord in Jacob in Genesis 31, 11 to 13. And the angel of the Lord sp- spoke to Jacob in a dream and identifies himself in verse 13 as the God of Bethel. So here's another clear indication. The angel of the Lord speaks and says, I am the God of Bethel. So it's clear that he's making the claim of deity. Uh, in Genesis 28, uh, 13, which is, which is referred to by the angel in uh, chapter 31, refers back to the uh, earlier time of Jacob at Bethel. Uh, and there uh, we read, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham. So the, the angel of the Lord, again, is the one who uh, identifies himself as the Lord God of Abraham and also reiterates, uh, reiterates the covenant. And we see that this is, again, uh, the angel of the Lord wrestling with Jacob in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 32, when he strikes Jacob on his hip and knocks the uh, hip out of joint. And so the uh, angel there speaks to Jacob and said, what's your name? Now, obviously, he knows who Jacob is, but he is making a point here. Jacob identified himself as Yaakov, the heel grabber or the, the duplicitous one. And he's given a new name, Israel, the one who has struggled with God, wrestled with God, and has prevailed. So uh, Jacob named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. We ended with Hosea 12.4, which referred back to that event, and that the angel was the Lord God of hosts. So today we're going to look at, or tonight we're going to look at several other examples the angel of the Lord and Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4. This is a central passage as well, a number of things that are said in relation to, uh, in relation to Moses. And here we see the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now, what's, so what's interesting here is it is identified as the angel of the Lord who is appearing to Moses in the burning bush. But we have to look at the surrounding context. Now, what you should be doing as we go through these passages is turning in your Bible a little bit of a sword drill as we go through the 
all the different passages, but you should be underlining these things. These are all uh, the major uh, major uh, passages that relate to the identity of the of the angel of the Lord. Making some notes in the margin. You can always tell somebody who's a good Bible student. It's hard, you can barely read the text of the scripture because uh, they have so many notes that are blocking it until you get to some place like like Hosea, and then they don't have any notes. So the angel of the Lord appears, and then what is said about this personage? If you look at verses 5, actually you can read this uh, on your own as you go through this, but just look, notice some things that are said there. In verse 5, uh, then he said, so this is the angel of the Lord speaking, and he says to Moses, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for this place where you stand is holy ground. Only where God's presence is, is there holy ground. Holy means that which is set apart, and in this case, it's set apart by the presence of God. And then in verse 6, we read, Moreover, he, that is the angel of the Lord, said, notice how he identifies himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So there's this connection from the time we saw the angel appear to Abraham in Genesis uh, chapter 22, where he reiterated the covenant again to Abraham. Uh, He appears to Jacob and identifies, the angel identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here he does the same thing. And notice Moses' reaction. He hides his face. Now, why is he hiding his face? It reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when all of a sudden he's before the throne of God and he says, oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He realizes he is in the presence of a righteous, just God and that he is not worthy. And so he hides his face for he is afraid to look upon God. And then in verse 7, it says, and the Lord said. So now Moses, who writes Exodus, is identifying the angel of the Lord for us and saying that this is is the Lord, so we, we can't guess about it. So several times in this passage, you have examples of where the angel of the Lord is either just referred to as God or as the Lord. Exodus 3.11, Moses said to God. In 3.13, Moses said to God, Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses. So again and again, you just see these little statements that tell you that this is God. It's not another category of of angel. So 3.16 reiterated the covenant with Abraham, and then in the next chapter, again, the angel identifies himself as the Lord God of the, their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we come to another category, the angel and Israel, in Exodus fourteen nineteen, And here we find that the angel of Yahweh is referred to as the angel of God. And this is often the case that the angel of the Lord is referred to as the angel of God, 
And the angel of God went before the camp of Israel. So as they're marching through the wilderness, all three million of them, they didn't get very far. I mean, it's tough to get three million people awake in the morning, packed up and moving. And by the time the front end gets three miles down the road, it's time for them to set up camp so that when the rest of them uh, get there, they can start preparing for dinner. So they probably didn't go more than five or six miles a day, if, if that. So the angel of the Lord always led them. And we read this here, the angel of God. There are many other passages that talk about the angel of the Lord. So those terms are interchangeable. And in 1420, it says it came, and so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus was a cloud and darkness to the one and gave light to the other. So in verse 21 of chapter 13, we're told that's the chapter before that the Lord went before them by day. So in 1419, the angel of the God, angel of God went before them. Exodus 13:21 it's the Lord who went before them by day so that identifies the angel of God as the angel of the Lord we see an, a reference to this later on in the old testament in Isaiah and in Isaiah 63 uh in Isaiah 63 verse 8 we read uh, for he, that is the Lord God, said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of the presence saved them. Contextually, the angel of the presence is the angel of the Lord. Notice what's attributed to the angel of his presence. He saves them. Only God provides salvation. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. So the salvation here is not just talking about physical or military deliverance. It's talking about redemption in the parallelism there. So only God redeems and saves. So the Lord has this uh, significant uh, relationship with uh, with Israel. Now, one of the more interesting characters in the Old Testament is Balaam. Balaam is a false prophet, but he is a prophet. There are a lot of questions we have about how that works. I can't answer them for you. Uh, I haven't read anybody who's answered them well. Uh, so the Lord, we're told, um, opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way, with his drawn sword in his hand. This is when uh, Balaam's ass has stopped going forward because the uh, angel of the Lord is before him. And, of course, Balaam couldn't see it, but the uh, donkey could. So he's uh, refused to go forward. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes so that he could see the angel of the Lord was standing there. And then the angel of the Lord speaks to him in verse 32. And then in verse 34, Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. So the implication there is that his disobedience to the angel of the Lord is sin. Well, you can, sin is only against God. Sin, by definition, is a violation of God's standard. But then we come to the next verse we read, Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, 
Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you shall you speak. So the Lord saying, you can't say anything. You can go and go work for the um, uh, for Balak, the king of Moab, but you can't say anything unless I allow it. I will put my words in your mouth. Only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. This is the angel of the Lord saying it. But then when we come to the next chapter in Numbers 23, 5, then it's the Lord who put a word in Balaam's mouth. It's not the angel of the Lord. So again, we see the identification of the angel of the Lord as being the Lord. Then we come to our passage in Judges chapter 6. So if you have not been following along uh, by going from passage to passage, go to Judges chapter 6. And uh, this is one of the strongest passages. In fact, usually when I've taught this in the past, I've gone to just the uh, uh, Genesis passage with Hagar and the Judges passage uh, with Gideon because it's very obvious from those two passages that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. But there's more to it than just that. So what we read in verse 11 is the introduction of the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, that is in the oak family, he's under an oak tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to his father Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and spoke and said, the Lord with you, you mighty man of valor. Now we'll come back and talk about this conversation and what is what is going on here. And Gideon responds, oh my Lord. And when he says Lord there, it's not uppercase. He's not using the name for deity. He is using a, a phrase that simply indicates respect. He's using the word Adonai. Um, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? See, that shows that Gideon is ignorant of any scripture because he doesn't know why they're under divine discipline. He's ignorant of Leviticus 26 and number and Deuteronomy 28. And then we read in verse 14, then the Lord turned to him. So we have two verses that introduce the angel of the Lord in verse 11, the angel of the Lord in verse 12, Gideon speaks in verse 13, and then the Lord turns to him. So here we have another example of the angel of the Lord being identified as Yahweh, as the Lord. Uh, And then in verse 16, and the Lord said to him, Again, so it's very clear in the passage just by the the shifting of the names that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. You go a little further down into the chapter, then we come to the uh, aha moment in Gideon's life when he realizes that it's the angel of the Lord uh, talking to him. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God! So he addresses the angel of the Lord as Yahweh Elohim. And he says, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. What does that remind you of? That should remind you of Jacob at Peniel where he has seen God face to face. 
So this is, a, this is something also that uh, God referred to when he spoke to Moses. He said, other prophets, uh, I have spoken to in dreams and visions, but I speak to you mouth to mouth or face to face. So what does Gideon do? He builds an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. Now, it's very clear in Scripture that you don't worship anyone but God. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And so if you have no other gods before me, then you don't go around calling everything that shows up and surprises you the Lord. And you don't worship anything other than the Lord. But here he is going to worship the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord doesn't say, no, no, don't do this. Now, when you get into some other passages in Scripture where angels appear to people, um, there is an attempt to worship them, and the angel will stop that. But when it's the angel of the Lord, he doesn't stop it. And so Gideon builds this altar and name it, the Lord is peace. And then what happens is that uh, as he prepares the, the uh, sacrifice, the angel will go up in the smoke and... Uh, Gideon realizes this is the um, angel of the Lord. Then we have one more time in Judges, Judges 13, where the angel of the Lord will appear to Samson's parents in Judges chapter, uh, chapter 13. So when you get to the end of Judges chapter 13, that is when you see the realization by Samson's father that this is indeed... Um, the Lord that they have that they have seen. So in thirteen three, it's identified as the angel of the Lord. And then when we get down to the end of the chapter, uh, the father Manoah will recognize that this is the Lord. But in the process, what happens is there is an identification in verse eighteen, and the angel of the Lord said to him. That is to Manoah, because he has asked, what is your name? Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? This is verse uh, yes, 18. I don't have that on the slide. Uh, seeing it is wonderful. The Hebrew word for wonderful is a word that is only used of deity. It is never used of anyone else. It is used in uh, Isaiah 9, 6 when it talks about wonderful counselor, referring to Emmanuel. So the, uh, there's a recognition or a statement by the angel of the Lord that he's making a claim of deity by the fact that he says his name, or that usually indicates character, that his name or character is wonderful. So the response is that Manoah takes a young goat with the grain offering and offers it on the rock to, to the Lord. The angel that is there now is identified as the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. And the angel of the Lord ascends in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife see that, they fall on their faces and they realize that this is God and that they have seen uh, the angel of the Lord. And he describes it in verse 22, we have seen God. So again and again, there's this identification with God as the, as, as the angel of the Lord, 
and the angel of the Lord is not another angel. So what we see in all of these passages is this identity of the angel of the Lord with the Lord. So there is a unity there. Okay, that's fine. Everybody agrees with that. But then there are other passages that indicate that the angel of the Lord is a distinct person from Yahweh. The distinction is between God the Father and the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, although we, they don't know that yet. Uh, but it's clear that there's more than one divine personage in the Old Testament. We look at passages like Exodus 23, 20 to 23, where Yahweh is talking to Moses and said, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Don't provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, that's a really interesting verse. What do you think that means, he will not pardon your transgressions? What does that imply? That implies that he has the ability to pardon your transgressions. Only God can do that. So this is an indication that this second personage that's mentioned there is fully God. He has the ability to forgive or not forgive. We look down at verse 23, for my angel will go before you. And if we were to take the time to go back through all of those passages I talked about earlier, uh, back in Exodus 14, where God said the, his angel, the, the angel of the Lord would go before Israel in the wilderness. So here, this angel, who's distinct from the Yahweh who is speaking, is the one who would go before them and lead them in the wilderness. And this is um, reference in Exodus 14:19 there in the bottom of the slide. Another set of passages is found in Exodus 32, uh, 33, and 34, as also in chapter 33, verses 1 to 2. And so there in verse 34, you have a reference to my angel. Uh, The Lord had said in verse uh, 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of the book. And now, therefore, go lead the people to the place where I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. So again, we see it's a different personage. And 33.1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here. And in verse 2, And I will send my angel before you. So it's, again, showing a distinct personage. We skip into the prophets. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So only God is righteous. So this king, this branch of righteousness, is again uh, distinct, but he has divine characteristics. Verse 6 and following, we read, In his days Judah will be saved, and only God can save. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousnesses. Then we look at Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. This is referencing the birth of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second line, unto us a son is given. 
the Messiah is referred to as the Son of God. And it is important to recognize the significance of this phrase, uh, son, in terms of Hebrew culture. In the Old Testament, we have a number of passages that refer to uh, the son. And the idea of a son is that he reflects the same nature as his father. And so when Jesus would claim to be the son he was making a claim to having the same nature as the father. And the Pharisees clearly understood that, which we'll see in just, just a minute. So unto us, a child is born, a son is given, and this son is going to be called mighty God. So these passages indicate that this, there's a second divine personage in the Old Testament. You have, first of all, that the angel of Yahweh is identified with God, he is the same as God, and then in other passages, he is distinct from God, and then there are these other passages that indicate that God has a son who is of the same divine nature as the Father. In Zechariah 1 2, we have an interesting conversation. The angel of Yahweh answered and said, O Yahweh Tzabaoth, Lord of hosts. So you have the Lord talking to the Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord talking to the Lord of hosts. So it's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. So we also have passages like Psalm 2-7, which talk about uh, the Son of God. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. So the speaker is the me who is identified by the statement of the Lord, you are my son. So you have Yahweh speaking to his son, saying, today I have begotten you. Again, Isaiah 9, 6. And then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus makes the statement to the Pharisees, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says that, they understand exactly what he means. When he uses that Greek phrase, ego emi, which is the translation of the meaning of Yahweh in uh, Exodus chapter 3, then this is making it clear that he, he's making a claim to eternality because he says I, he, that he existed before Abraham, and he's making a claim to deity because he uses the ego emi in this distinctive way. And the response to that, which is the same as the response earlier in John 5.18, is that they sought to kill him and to, to stone him, and he slipped away in John 8. John 5.18 and 19, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he was not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. When he called himself or referred to himself as the son he is making this claim to having the same nature as the Father. John five nineteen. most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. He's making a clear claim to having full undiminished deity. In John 10, uh, 36 to 38, do you say of him who whom the Father sanctified and said into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. 
If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do the works of the Father, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. It's making a clear claim to be deity. And in John 10, 30, earlier in that chapter, he said, I and the Father are one. And what did the Jews do? They go for the rocks. They took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus is so sophisticated and calm in the way he answers. He says, I've done many good works from my Father. From which of these works do you stone me? And they make it clear. He's forcing them to make it clear that he, they want to stone him uh, because he made himself out to be God. They understood the issues. One last verse to tie things together with what we saw in the Old Testament as we saw the angel who went before Israel, the angel of the Lord leading Israel through the wilderness, we realize that there is a typology working also in some of the other aspects. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, uh, Paul makes this clear, and he says that, um, says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized or identified with Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Now that, we could go into a whole different direction. We've done this before going through all the times in the Old Testament that God is given that name of the rock. He is the rock. Jesus is the rock that followed them. God, Yahweh, is their eternal rock. But here it makes it clear that the rock that Moses struck, out of which the water came, this, it's a picture of Christ as our spiritual uh, nourishment, and that rock was Christ. So you see all these connections between, first of all, the angel of the Lord is identified with God, having all of the attributes of God, and he's full deity. Then you see other passages that distinguish between one personage in the Godhead and another. There's at least two divine persons, which we come to understand as the Father and the Son, because there's the other set of verses, like Isaiah 9, 6 and Psalm 2, 7, that indicate that um, you have the Father and the Son. Then when you get into the New Testament, Jesus is just alluding to those same passages to tie everything together in a nice little bow. And then we find out from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the spiritual rock that followed them, that indicates a person. And we know from uh, Exodus that not only did the angel of the Lord precede them, but also followed them. And so this tells us that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. So that's going to bring us to the end of our study on the angel of the Lord and the significance of that. And I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and everybody's saying, well, you're early. But we have a special. We have a special guest tonight. He is a longtime friend. And he is now a missionary in Tahiti. So don't get jealous. Envy is a sin. 
He doesn't have much of a tan, though, so it must not be very warm yet. But uh, Mark Perkins is here, and so Mark's going to come up after I pray and uh, give us an update on what's going on with their ministry in Tahiti. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to recognize the unity of Scripture, the uh, way in which so many uh, different uh, names and threads and ideas intersect and correlate throughout the Scripture. Uh, Father, we're thankful that we can come to understand that from Genesis to Revelation, there's a consistent consistency and that throughout all there runs your plan of salvation. So, Father, we pray that now as we go forward in, in what happens in Judges 6, that we can understand it more thoroughly. And, uh, Father, we're thankful Mark and Renee are here. We're thankful for their ministry in Tahiti, and we just pray that you would uh, just continue to bless and prosper them in that ministry. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In brief, uh, we've been in Tahiti for eight months. Um, we had uh, delays in getting our visas. Uh, we couch surfed for two months in California um, uh, with uh, friends who are still our friends, thankfully. And um, we uh, arrived on the island in the middle of COVID shutdown. Uh, there was a curfew, there was confinement, even the beaches were closed. And so uh, we uh, were very limited, just trying to set up our house and buy a car and those kinds of things. So um, really the first months were, were oriented toward practical matters. Uh, but soon after, uh, we started uh, connecting with uh, Tahitians. Uh, we identified some crucial needs, pastor training. Uh, we're looking for uh, uh, the next Tahitian, Jim Myers or Robbie Dean. So uh, uh, we're working on that. Uh, we've been connected to, uh, to several pastors and several teachers who uh, have a lot of potential, but they need education. Uh, we also identified that the 170-year-old Tahitian translation of the Bible was crummy. And so uh, we uh, began uh, for the first time to translate uh, the Tahitian Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew. Uh, the, first, uh, the first Bible was translated from the King James Version. So uh, I call it the double King James uh, because uh, the King James is antiquated and the Tahitian language has changed by 60% in the past 170 years. So it's not a very useful Bible, and we have to put something useful into their hands. Uh, we're grateful to have translated or finished our raw translation, our initial translation of John and Galatians, and we're working on Romans. And so uh, uh, we uh, have uh, uh, just an incredible group of Tahitians, several who are English speakers, French speakers, and uh, excellent in Tahitian. And we sit around the table and have these uh, four language 
uh, marathons of 10 or 12 hours a day where we, we work through passages. And so uh, that, that's coming up. We hope to have a release of John um, later this year along with an audio Bible of John because Tahitians aren't fond of reading. Uh, we're uh, identifying, um, as I mentioned, several pastors uh, who uh, who are uh, eager to learn more. They're great teachers, but they need a better foundation in the Bible. Uh, when we arrived on the island, uh, we started attending a local church where there was uh, uh, salvation by baptism and not the Holy Spirit, uh, but uh, baptism by immersion. Uh, we had some interaction with them. And so they're uh, faith alone in Christ alone church now. And so this was uh, uh, thanks to your prayers, uh, thanks to uh, the Lord's grace, uh, we're making progress with this. Um, having the opportunity to teach uh, two or three times a week, and everywhere I go, I'm greeted with that uh, same refrain of, we've never heard teaching like this before. And uh, to which I respond, uh, thanks, uh, wouldn't you like to teach like this? And this is why I'm here. Um, uh, Renee has been involved with uh, child evangelism in Tahiti, uh, Operation Christmas Child, uh, came to the island the same week we did. And so uh, our, our group, we participated with a group that was the uh, first ever national launch of that shoebox evangelism program, and uh, it, it went really well. We had 60 or 70 children and uh, uh, a great group of uh, ladies who orchestrated the whole thing. Uh, what else are we doing, Renee? It, it kind of covers it there. So um, for short-term missions, uh, we're in development to uh, bring our favorite uh, pastors, teachers, theologians to come and teach for a week or two at a time and um, developing groups that way. We have evangelistic ideas uh, about sports ministries. So if you're good at surfing, that would be uh, one sport that they're fond of or canoe racing. And um, uh, so we, we have those things going on as well. Uh, time after time, we just stop and thank the Lord and we shake our heads and, and think people are praying for us. And uh, Tahiti is a notorious missionary graveyard, meaning that people come and fail and get discouraged and go home. And uh, we, we've known personally some just like that who have uh, 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 not left a trace on the island. And um, so we're having an impact. Uh, things are very promising. And we shake our heads and we just think people are praying for us, They're praying good prayers, and uh, we're so grateful for your support. So we're supported through Village Ministries uh, out of Oklahoma City, and also, um, uh, I have a, a nonprofit, Evanelia, E-V-A-N-E-L-I-A, evanelia.org. And uh, that's for education in French Polynesia. 
uh, we're working on our French. I'm uh, near fluency in French now and can teach in French. Uh, Tahitian is always off yet. Um, uh, by the way, our Bible translation project is going into six other small island languages that have never had a Bible. And uh, in our little local church, we have uh, members from five of those six islands who can help us with that project. So uh, all I can say is we're so grateful. Uh, it's amazing what's happened so far. Uh, we're eager to get back there and get back at it. So thank you. Any questions? Yeah, Tahitian is uh, related to Hawaiian, Samoan, uh, in that broad family of languages. So your translating will have impact on all these different Polynesian languages? Um, mainly Tahitian, and there's uh, about 300,000, oh no, maybe 500,000 people worldwide who speak in Tahitian. In language? Um, they have Phronesian. It's a Creole language of French and Tahitian. And uh, no, there's no pidgin English. They don't really speak English there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it can have a pretty strong regional impact for sure. Uh, there are barriers to that that you can pray for. Uh, the, the old Bible, uh, people... Uh, we'll use their King James until you pry it from their cold, dead hands. And so, um, you, you know, uh, they're like that. So uh, certainly pray for acceptance of this new Bible, which many will feel is sacrilegious, to be honest. So, good. Anything else? All right. Um, you can find me through your pastor, uh, Robbie Dean, and uh, get my email address if you want to be in touch. Sir. That's right, and it's a church we picked up support for you, Thank you. this last year. Yeah, we're so grateful. So yeah. he's one of our, our missionaries at West Houston Bible Church supports. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank, thank you for this time that we've had, for the work you're doing with Mark and Renee. Uh, just phenomenal to uh, listen to what they've accomplished already in the translation uh, work that they're doing, and we know how difficult that is. And, Father, we just pray that they'll continue to have the resources and the people and uh, everything necessary, the volunteers, to help them uh, in order to accomplish the mission. And uh, we just ask that you continue to supply those needs in Christ's name. Amen.